Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now on Food FM, you're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. Caroline and her guests make sense of the world through food. From politics to farming, making and cooking. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Bread and Butter, where we talk about all the things to do with food that fascinate, intrigue, move and engage us. And today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Angela Hoy, the author of a much acclaimed book called Takeaway, which is a kind of memoir with recipes about growing up in Wales in her family restaurant business, a Chinese takeaway, and also joined by Khalil Radwan of Willowbrook Farm in Oxfordshire, which is Britain's only organic halal farm. It might sound like a rather sort of um, disparate pair of guests today, but I think what really binds them is that they've both grown up in very intense food businesses. So very delighted to welcome you both. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Oh, absolute pleasure. And looking forward to hearing what it's been like on your food, professional and emotional journey. Angela, why don't we start with you tell us a little bit I mean I have to say congratulations on the you know wonderful uh coverage that your book has had but tell us in your own words um just a little overview of the book how it came into being and share it in your own way yeah sure um so I work as a journalist full-time uh I used to be the food and drink writer at Time Out and now recently I'm the editor at Recce which is more of an industry like B2B so it's, for, uh, it's an app for chefs and suppliers to connect them better because essentially working in kitchens, you would just have like one kitchen manager calling 30 or different supply lines. Um, so this app just essentially helps them connect, find better suppliers, uh, find more new suppliers and telling chef stories. So I've recently started there. How it came about was I wrote a piece for Vice like years and years ago, and it was just more about the state of the takeaway industry and how it kind of is digitized, how, you know, apps and online ordering platforms like Deliveroo just eat are slowly kind of taking over. I grew up in the Chinese takeaway in Wales. My parents owned it from 1988 and then they sold it in 2000 and when was it? 2018. So I think when we sold the shop, we I just started to kind of reflect on the times that we had in the takeaway. I was really nostalgic for it and 
you know, working in the kitchens like day in, day out, seven days a week, and then just try to figure out what life was like before the takeaway and then after the takeaway. When I wrote the piece for Vice, it just kind of made me reflect on it. And I wrote a little bit about our like takeaway upbringing. And then that kind of caught the eye of a publisher. That's how it came about. I never really expected to actually write a book about my experience because I never really thought it was really anything that special. It was just a way of life. Like this is just how we grew up. Like we lived above the shop. Um, and then you go downstairs, like our home family kitchen was the professional kitchen. It's like a tiny little, it's like the red tiles on the floor, stainless steel surfaces and then the walk range. But like that was our family home. Yeah, it just made me really reflect on all those, all the good and bad times working in the kitchen. And so I wrote the experience. And yeah, it's just been a really incredible um, reception. Um, I'm just kind of amazed how people really resonate with it. I, you know, grew up in a very white, like a very white area in like the South Wales Valleys where, you know, we were the only, well, one of the few Chinese families around. So I always felt very alone. So it was very um, like an isolating experience because I never really thought there was anyone else that's quite like me until I moved to London. I realized, oh, there's, there's loads of other people. But yeah, that's how it kind of came about, essentially. Thank you, Angela. And um, Carlyle, tell me, I mean, there might be some resonances um, in, in Angela's story for you, but tell me a little bit about the origins of Willowbrook Farm, which I believe was founded by your parents. And, and am I right in saying they were both academics? Yes, yeah. The farm, I guess, originated as an idea, but probably about five years before we bought the land, my father um, and mother were both in academic teaching. My father was an Oxford University, Oxford University lecturer, and he did a lot of studies and uh, work with mainly farms in the Middle East, in Africa, um, date farms. His uh, speciality was irrigation, so um, he was doing a lot of work there, and that was, in a way, he saw a lot of traditional farming methods and impacts on the environment um, and how things are changing there. And then later on, of course, in England, how we've progressed and kind of the ending result or the future result of the modern farming. Um, and that had pushed him to basically make a life change, break away from um, the modern farming methods, which are very much focused on production, efficiency, um, and not caring for the environment um, or the animals as much. And that's very important in Islam, that we care for the environment and the animals in order to have the products that we are allowed to eat, halal meat that we can eat. The requirement of that is the meat must be produced in a sustainable manner. So we were looking at that on one hand in theory, and then we were looking at um, what's actually happening. And then we thought, well, okay, dad's getting to the point where he could go down the route of being an academic, uh, and that would be his career until he retires. Or we change things up and with the growing family, look to do something a bit more meaningful. So dad and mom went into, started looking for land, found um, this empty strip of uh, land here we're, we're on now um, it was just for grazing no farming um, no production uh, no arable um, farming um, so they started the farm there basically to have meat that we could uh, be happy to consume that was good for us good for the body good for the mind good for the soul um, and my mum's mum uh, um, came in from the holistic idea of looking at everything you put into your body, how that affects um, your mental state more. And she was also into reflexology and homeopathy as well. So she was very much into natural remedies and natural medicines. My father was more involved with the actual farming, both academic with no practical experience. So when we actually got into it, it was a real lifestyle change. 
and then it was jump in with both feet because we'd made this commitment now. We'd sold our house, we'd changed their entire career, and at the age of 40, just made a complete veering off from the trajectory they were on. So then we had the farm um, in the start, just land. We got chickens, um, made that sustainable, um, financially stay sustainable, just to produce eggs. Um, started local farmer's market in Oxford, got to know the community, made links with community, progressed on to doing lamb and beef, as well as the chicken for meat. T- roll forward 10 years more, we had now the entire family. My, my younger brother was born on the farm um, about 18 years ago, so about five years into the farm, two, two years into the farm, I think. Um, we lose track of time here. It's very blurred. Yeah, so we progressed from just feeding ourselves now to now doing a bit more in the way of education as well as feeding. But everything is now very in-house. And like Angela was saying about having your commercial kitchen is your domestic kitchen. Now, everything domestic is our business or everything that's our business is our domestic life. There's very little separation. So our veg garden is directly for the cafe and a little bit of surplus for the customers, but the majority is our own. Anything that we produce meat-wise or non-meat, even soaps and um, cottage industries, we make a lot of soap and fermenting foods and preserves. And all of this is made first and foremost really still for ourselves, but because we're doing it at a large enough scale that we can be efficient with it and cost-effective, that's how we then run the business. Going back a little bit, Khalil, how old were you when you moved to the farm? It was 2002, um, so I was nine. Yeah. <laughs> and time like time goes very strangely here. Whenever you think it's been one year, it's been two. You think it's been two years, it's been four. It's always twice as long as you feel. You get so caught up in what happens here. Time really slips past. It's, people got an experience of that during the corona lockdowns when everything went weird and you couldn't kind of keep track of time. That's been our life for about 20 years. We lost track of time a long time ago. And we kind of plot it by the seasons or various things that happen on the farm. Like, oh, that was the year when there was a storm. But we don't know what year that was. It's just that was the storm year or that was the flooding year. Um, but yeah, back then it was it was a lifestyle, a big lifestyle change. I was nine years old. We were um, dropped from small village, Bladen, very small English um, Oxford village, to tiny tiny hamlet where we are now and our family of 10 to show you how small this hamlet is our family is 10 we're half the population so there's us 10 and then there's the <laughs> other people who live here and it's it's weird because we've been the outsiders we've been the only non-white people in the village in the area for the last 20 years um, and that's met with a little bit of I guess um, pushback is the nicest way of putting it but because we're new, because we're different, and because we also have a style of farming that brings a lot of people visiting the farm, those who will find a reason, those who want to have a reason to complain, will find a reason to complain about us being noisy or, you know, different. So that's been a bit strange growing up. But then Oxford is lovely. Oxford is very mixed. And being in school in Oxford, it's actually a world, it's very different. It's very accepting, Oxford city itself especially the circles, the farming circles we move in, where everyone is really focusing more on quality and what you're doing, not who you are. Angela, I could um, see that you were nodding while Carlyle was speaking. And I think there were some things that he was saying that chimed with you. I mean, obviously, from your point of view, you you never knew anything else other than growing up in your, your parents' restaurant. And I'm just wondering, I mean, 
clearly it's had a, a sort of massive influence on you. Did you, were there times when you really wanted to reject it and to do something completely different, like you know, run away to the circus? Or tell me <laughs> what it was for you. Um, yeah, I guess it's very similar to Khalil. Um, like I, I started working in the takeaway when I was eight years old. Um, so I had a little plastic like fold away stool that I would um, stand on to serve customers behind the counter. So I would try to struggle, you know, carrying like big two liter bottles of Coke or carrying these like um, plastic bags full of Chinese takeaway containers for customers answering phone calls and I think as I got older the, there was more more responsibilities so like answering phone calls going on delivery routes um and then like helping out with the deep fryer station and um yeah it was just very intertwined like it's the like the blurred lives because of you know living above and then working downstairs there was no escape really and you kind of did it for obligation of your family because this was just like our way to make ends meet and you know you just kind of get roped into it and sucked into it and um obviously I hated it as a teenage girl living in Wales who just wanted to do her own thing probably for the best in a way that I was trapped in the takeaway working because god knows what else I would have done I probably would have gone out and gone drinking and smoking and doing whatever um so I'm just really glad in a way that I had a place to you know I was very close with my family like it developed a lot of skills for me when I was young so I was, you know, dealing with money, answering phone calls and um, dealing with customers, um, sometimes good customers, sometimes bad customers. You know, they they were the ones that made the whole like our takeaway experience so lively and and so great in the times, like all the good and bad were down to our customers. So, you know, we, we would know all of our customers by their order rather than their names. So... Yeah. You know, they'd be like this drunken steak man that would come in who would always order a steak stumbling home from the pub. They'd be like the old couple who would always order boiled rice. And I think a lot of people said to me when I read the when they read the book, they were like, oh, is this a fiction? I'm like, no, like, absolutely not. Like, it's it's just all these different customers and characters that kind of make the book that what it is. And in a way, it kind of writes itself because they kind of stick with you and all these people who come in and out of the you know, who come in and out of the shop, they kind of leave an impact on you, especially with like our staff. We had a few front of house staff who was on the counter on the weekends that we would hire. So there'd be an old woman that who used to work behind the counter and she's been there for like 30, 20, 30 years, pretty much like throughout the whole time. And in a way she was like my grandma because, you know, uh, my parents were busy working at the shop. They never really had time to look after me and my brothers um so we did all the school work ourselves and you know customers would come in and like help us with like our maths homework and science homework while we were serving them so in a way we were very much like part of the community and the community like welcomed us yeah like it's you know obviously I hated working at the takeaway as a kid because I just wanted to do my own thing like I I when I first I think like when I wanted to do what I what was after school, I went into journalism university and I wanted to try and carve my own path. Like I didn't want to do work in hospitality because, you know, I knew how hard work hospitality is. And, um, and I knew my parents always tried to discourage us from working in the kitchens, you know, working on your feet, you know, seven days a week, like working, 
18 plus hours a day, chopping vegetables, prepping, peeling prawns, whisking eggs. And, you know, it's a very, very like laborious, hard work, essentially. And my parents didn't want that for us. So they, you know, sacrificed a lot for me and my brothers to be able to go to school, to go get a higher education because my parents never really had an education in Hong Kong and China. So my mum grew up in the Cultural Revolution. You know, she tried to escape like Chairman Mao's regime. So she dropped out of school, like in primary school. And then my dad uh, dropped out of school in like high school, like comprehensive. So he was, you know, dropped out of school when he was 13 to work uh, pushing cart noodles in the streets of Hong Kong. So they never really had an education. So they sacrificed a lot for us in order to, do do better than them essentially so um yeah by by the time I went to university I studied journalism and then I wanted to do fashion and music ended up hating it and then accidentally fell fall into food essentially and I never really thought food was a, a viable career path um it was never really an option for me I thought and then until I accidentally started freelancing, working for a food magazine, I was working, it's just doing like food styling, doing like writing recipes and working with nutritionists and writers. And then that's how I kind of got my foot into the door within food and accidentally fell into it and then realized like, actually, I know a lot about food because you grew up in such a intense food environment. In a way, it's like me coming back to food on my own terms because growing up you're kind of forced into liking food because you're surrounded by it so you kind of hate the very thing that brings you money or brings you puts a roof over your head in a way yeah that's Uh, that's so interesting and I I think it it shows the kind of the pull of food is so so incredibly strong um but also those sort of formative experiences from your childhood and my mother was a journalist and when I was little people always used to say now will you be a journalist when you grow up like your mummy and I'd say no and yet here I am and I'm absolutely enmeshed in the world of media and communications but it took me a few kind of zigzag turns to end up there but what strikes me about um both of you Angela and Khalil is that your parents actually have made the reverse journey and that Angela's parents you know, worked so hard to ensure that that Andrew and her brothers didn't have to have that very intense physical way of life and could go off and be educated. And your parents, Khalil, left life as Oxford academics to go to the land. Isn't that a fascinating sort of inversion of experience? It sort of links you both. But Khalil, tell me a little bit about your family. I mean, it it sounds to me as though you're all very emotionally close and and you share a a, a sort of a a commitment and and your vision of what Willowbrook Farm means. I mean, tell me how it's been. Is is it as kind of rosy as I'm depicting or is it sometimes rather sort of tense and fraught? Okay, tense and fraught. Any uh, self-employed business any business anywhere you're self-employed is going to cause a lot of stress and strain add to that mix being totally out of your hands you're not controlling your business because it's natural so you're totally at the mercy of nature the weather and anything that can change you know totally total act of gods so that adds a whole load of stress um and then of course you're working with family so that is also a load of stress when you mix all that together you can really have a recipe for disaster but I think that's one of the things about society is you have to accept where you're at and make the best from it and work together and what we've done is we've created this community although it is just our family mainly on the farm 
where we are living here 24-7, we're working here 24-7. Not all of us work on the farm. Like I say, there's 10 of us. Um, if you count everyone who's currently on the farm now and or the my uh, two children. Um, but of those who actually work on the farm, there's only five full-time, three of us being family. And then we've got seven of us kind of part-time helping around. Even my younger children are on the farm helping dig the veg garden and getting connected to nature um, and what we're doing, learning as we go. Um, and then we've got the local community. We've got a couple of local uh, staff members who work on the farm um, and the wider community volunteering and getting involved throughout the year. So it is lovely. It is really stressful. It's really relaxing at the same time. It's basically everything in one world together. At certain times of the year, it's wonderful and relaxing and you can really enjoy the farm in the spring and the summer when things are really beautiful. You can't not really be enthusiastic and happy, even if you're working, you're doing something you love. Um, maybe in midwinter, or around Christmas time, things really hit breaking point and get stressful because obviously everyone's emotionally drained in the winter and the work is still uh, very much there. But we keep ourselves in a kind of a good place mentally and physically by working together. And thankfully, I mean, you always hopefully get on with your family and love your family. So that really does help. Um, we're all there for support, of course, to each other. And then the fact that what we're doing is so meaningful, I think you could be doing something that is less stressful and earns a lot more money the, in an office somewhere. But the farm is one of those jobs where you're creating something of true value. It's real in that it lasts beyond us. It's, you plant a tree, it's not for your generation, it's for the generations to come. What we're doing here over the last 20 years, we've changed the very soil quality, uh, the makeup of the very soil around us. We've planted over 5,000 trees, uh, which has changed so much about the actual land itself. And the way we farm has been one of kind of regeneration rather than exclusion of nature. So we've really created something here over the last 20 years that we're really now starting to see in true effect. 20 more years, it'll be a whole nother situation for my children to enjoy. Um, and thankfully, um, we've we've managed to bring in all of our own kind of um, ideas. As my parents have stepped back, and uh, me and my brother especially, and my wife have taken on the reins, we've really brought in our own kind of personal twist to the farm. So if we want to start a little um, kind of small scale mushroom growing um, shed just for personal fun as a hobby, that's kind of weaves into the tapestry of the farm. It either becomes a product or it becomes a course, or it just becomes something that we can show people uh, now and then on little social media posts or on a visit to the farm. So it becomes a showcase of our life. And then, then we don't always feel like we're working, we're just living, but we have to show what we're doing in a way that is a bit more professional, maybe than you would if no one was watching. Carla, that, thank you, because that's, that's such a sort of great explanation of the values that bind you and your family together, but also that, that great sense of the future and what you're, I'm not going to use the word building, but what you're, you're growing, literally. Angela, just yeah. thinking about you and what you have given through your writing, and you've you've written um, what is a really uh, uh, not meant to qualify the word unique. You've written a unique account of Anglo Chinese food culture. How would you like to see that developing? Is that something that do you feel that the book has opened up a new path for you? 
you know, growing up in such an isolated exp- uh, experience when, you know, there's not that many of a Chinese, for I thought that there wasn't that many Chinese takeaway kids, um, which actually is, has grown to become actually a quite a not universal, but there's actually so many of, of a Chinese takeaway kids, but not just Chinese takeaway kids, but it also resonates with so many other people. Since the book has come out, I've had people from you know all over who has messaged and reached out saying that you know I grew up in a fish and chip shop I grew up in a pub the pub I grew up in a you know Caribbean takeaway or like a Jamaican takeaway like everyone's had some sort of similar kind of like thread that kind of links us together and that's the amazing thing that I never really thought about you know I wrote the book's very in a purely in a selfish kind of point of view in a way I wrote it writing about my experience this is my story and not really thinking about the aftermath or anyone else um but then realizing after the book has come out that you know so many people like resonate with it and it's been really amazing and you know I wanted the book to be kind of a a starting point of conversation you know I feel like the Chinese food and Chinese food history is such a rich uh you know it's such a rich long history and I wanted to kind of use that as like a starting point like how Chinese food developed in the in the UK how Chinese food came to be and how it you know how Chinese takeaways kind of dominated the the UK how there's a Chinese takeaway up and down the country you know you get one in like the you know the most rural part on like a seaside coastal town or even in the mountains somewhere or you know in in like uh in Wales there's like one near the farm in the middle of nowhere so I find that amazing and how everyone has all these incredible stories growing above a you know growing up in the takeaway being in this community and the people that they serve and how they're part of the community and um and I wanted to kind of highlight that and I wanted to highlight the the stories and use that as a jumping point for a bigger conversation and topics around food, topics around identity and racism and what it means to kind of be a British Chinese person today in this country. Yeah, I think that's, I hope I've achieved that essentially. And um, yeah, and I hope like people, I'm really glad that people have enjoyed it so far. Definitely. And I, I mean, I think you have achieved it because, you know, we're talking about it now, aren't we? Which is all part <laughs> of that achievement. And I, I, you know, Carla, just to to explain to you how I came across uh, Willowbrook Farm. Um, During the lockdowns, my brother and I became carers for our very elderly mother. And for six months, we cared for her by ourselves. But then eventually a wonderful woman called Amina came into our lives, who was um, half Spanish and half Moroccan and and Muslim. And we lived together, our little tiny community of four people in this house that was, you know, trying to keep COVID at bay. And she, when she arrived, she said that she would prefer to eat halal meat. So we found Willowbrook Farm and ordered meat uh-huh. from you. And that's how I came across it. But I learned so much um, about Islam from Amina, who's just the most sort of truly loving and amazing woman. I mean, we could not have managed without her. And she gave gave my mother a wonderful last year of her life. But, you know, we it was this sort of, food was the unifying thing and that was you know that food is what's binding the three of us now in this conversation isn't it it's opening up sensitive important sometimes avoided areas 
of thinking. And I'm thinking, you know, that Britain, I think, has a real issue about confronting its colonial past. I think we're really struggling with that here at the moment. And I think you two perhaps might have interesting thoughts on that and how your stories and food can help us start to address it all honestly. Well, dialogue's always key in anything, isn't it? Uh, you watch any any drama or any kind of story and you just wish you basically screaming at the TV saying, just speak. Dialogue overcomes everything and food and music are probably the second best things to cross any nation and any kind of culture. I'd certainly agree with that. What do you think, Angela? Yeah, I mean, the... Yeah, I mean, where do we even begin, I guess, is the conversation. <laughs> it's like, um, obviously there's uh, a lot of like history in terms of like food and colonialism and um i guess like that's in a way that's how my parents came to the country because of colonialism you know hong kong was under uk rule for 99 years you know there was obviously uh, back then hong kong was a very a patch of undeveloped patch of land and and uh, you know during under the colonial rule, basically because of the opium wars, essentially, um, the basically like Hong Kong developed, become you know one of the you know it, became, it was like actual. Wait, well, I'm trying to formulate my words. Sorry, I think it's like you know Hong Kong developed, become like a powerhouse. Like Hong Kong became like the the Western's world of like the gateway to Asia, essentially, and it became built up. So I find it difficult in terms of like Hong Kong's and the UK relationship, because it was under, you know, UK rule, it, um, there was a, you know, if you go to Hong Kong, and then on the island, there's actually like a big, massive, like segregation, you know, the, all the white people were allowed to go on the island on certain parts, and like all the Chinese people weren't allowed to go there. Um, but it also brought a lot of opportunity, and it also brought a lot of um, in a developed Hong Kong and you know my parents jumped on that opportunity to be able to come to the country uh, to be able to come to the UK because they're allowed to have um, British passports in the way so it's like it's it's a mixed feelings you know a lot of Hong Kong people feel very strongly about the UK and they feel like there was better times but in a way it's like it's yeah it's this weird I can't really explain it. I think it's just like this whole, like, it's such a messy history. In a way, it's like we've used food to kind of understand each other better. So I think that's probably why, like, one of the reasons why um, Chinese takeaways were so anglicized is because of this, the relationship that they had. It's intricately, like, linked together. So, like, Chinese people came to the UK because of, like, trade routes and because they had jobs as seamen. Uh, they mainly like settled in like Liverpool and Manchester. That's what, that's why they kind of built Chinatowns because of segregation, because they didn't they weren't allowed in certain places in the UK. So they created Chinatowns. They had these restaurants to kind of cater towards the Chinese audiences, and I guess that's how a lot of Chinese takeaways and restaurants were uh, created to you know cater towards the seamen. And um, and I think during that time it was like post war. And a lot of people wanted, they didn't want rations. They didn't want tin food anymore. And they wanted to try Chinese food. And I think that's where it kind of developed from this taste of Chinese food. And they thought that, you know, I think uh, one of the most like universal dishes that kind of connected people was um, like chop suey, which was essentially just mishmash of like, you know, used up vegetables tied together in this uh, like thick 
corn flour bound sauce that's almost like a gravy. Chinese people kind of adapted Chinese food to what was around, what was available. So they used a lot of, you know, tinned food like bamboo shoots and uh, hardy vegetables like onions and peppers. And that was what was available to them. And, you know, in Hong Kong, there's like an abundance of pork and seafood, which you didn't actually get access, which wasn't really accessible in the UK. So that's in a way, it's like a product of colonialism, I guess, like Chinese takeaways were a product of colonialism in a way, because they just used and adapted what was available to them. And they catered towards British tastes. And, you know, I can't really imagine what like Welsh people like eating, you know, um, uh, like chicken feet or um, like steamed eggs or steamed fish because I don't think the appetite was there, and that probably would have scared people off. I think so. They were in a way that was what I wanted to t- uh, come across to uh, tell people as well in my story is that you know Chinese takeaways, yes, it's not authentic, or but then again, like what is authenticity? It's more about the innovation and adapting and it's kind of carved its own unique path itself. It's kind of changed history. You're saying how the Chinese uh, takeaway food is very anglicized and um, isn't the authentic. Mm. We definitely see that with Indian foods as well. My family is very mixed. I didn't actually mention the heritage we've mm-hmm. got, but my mother's Pakistani. Uh, but on my father's side, we've got Egyptian, Turkish, Irish, English and Crete. So we're really very mixed um, in our kind of own makeup. And it shows in the food we have on the farm. We obviously try and eat our own produce. So then that's going to be English um, seasonal produce. So the food we can cook with is going to be native to the UK um, for the most part. And at the market stalls, selling the different items, products we sell, I've, I took it upon myself to learn how to cook every single item of meat. And because we also really try and use every single part like you said about chicken feet being very much uh, different, trying to encourage people to try different things out of their comfort zone. We're taking our, um, we're talking to the English people locally, uh, local customers, and we're kind of talking about our own way we'd cook them a curry and all these different things. And one thing is curry, people often think is just one, uh, is a a type of food, but curry is actually the specific dish, curry um, itself. Um, You get different types of sullens curry is uh, used incorrectly in English to mean a style of cooking. But anyway, so we'd do um, English, uh, we'd do Indian Pakistani styles of cooking and I'd use those as recommendations. But then to tweak it a bit, I actually learned another way. I'd always try and cook it the English way. So I'd then end up with this mix of English style cooking, but with Asian style spices. And then the end result is halfway between both. And I'd take the kind of, I'd I'd see it as taking Mm. the best of each culture and just basically applying it to what we have seasonally available and focusing on using up everything that is available. So I'd go through chicken feet in the Asian style, chicken feet in the English soup, kind of making a stock out of it, or broth, quite simple. Um, and we just play around with all these different styles of cooking so that I could go now to anyone, I feel, from any kind of English or Pakistani, Asian, uh, Muslim background and saying, basically, what kind of meal are you trying to cook? Okay, you can use this cut, which you wouldn't consider otherwise using, to get the same or similar dish. Or if they're asking for something that isn't in stock right now, I can always offer them a substitution that would still uh, suffice. Um, But yeah, it means that you end up with a very mixed um, dish, and you're really proud of all this heritage and all this information and knowledge we've got from all these other cultures. 
So that's a good starting point. And then hopefully people then, I guess, look into the culture more. And that's one way you could tackle, um, as you said, the the history, um, colonialism history that we have by maybe accessing the, the cuisine, you then start to really learn about the culture and go deeper. I just, I'm absolutely fascinated by everything you've both shared with me um, and our listeners. And, and Angela, you said something really lovely just now about understanding each other better through food. And I think that's just such a sort of positive, joyful, unifying approach to life. And it's something that you both exemplify in the way that you live out your lives. So thank you both. I look forward to the next <laughs> chapter in both of your food adventures with great interest. You're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.